Uh, let's look at the book of Acts together. Go to Acts chapter 1 with me, if you will. Acts chapter 1. <clears throat> we were singing that song just a moment ago, Mine are keys to Zion City. It's just a, I mean, it's a very Old Testament way of saying that uh, we belong to the people of God and that one day uh, we will join God in his dwelling place, which is uh, Zion City. It's the old city of Zion in the Old Testament is, is the name of the Jerusalem. Uh, it's the place that God dwells. And so um, my son, my, my, my oldest son, my second born, his name is Zion. And so I bent down just now and said to him, hey, do you hear us saying your name? He's like, yeah, okay, yeah, I got it, I got it. Like that, like, don't talk to me. I'm, yeah, I'm listening. Uh, he loves music, and uh, man, my prayer for him is that one day he will join us in Zion City. Um, the book of Acts is, is a wonderful book for us to be looking at. There's so many neat things for us to see here. So we're going to look at verses 12 through 26 momentarily, okay? Uh, I mentioned Zion. I have three other children. My wife and I, uh, Brooke is my wife. Many of you know Brooke, and um, she's in the nursery right now. But uh, Brooke and I have four children, and I mentioned Zion. Shepard is the youngest. He's the baby. The two girls, uh, the oldest is Shiloh. Uh, she was sitting there just a moment ago with me. And then the third born is Eden, and they all have very unique personalities as if you have children you know kind of what that's like the other day uh, Shiloh my kids are crazy okay I'll just be honest with you they're crazy and the apple didn't fall too far from the tree I'm getting out in front of that joke before you even make it because I know what's coming after the service um Shiloh was given Eden a piggyback ride, which it's honestly, she's not old enough or big enough to be able to hold much weight at all. Uh, and so she, and Eden's little, but it's still, I knew it was a bad idea. You know, yes, parents, you know what it is. You look over and you're like, this is not going to go well. And you don't want to micromanage them and ruin their fun. And so I just like, okay, be careful. You look over there, you know, it's hopeless. Why are you even saying it? It's like, I might as well be talking to the cat. Like, be careful. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, dad. Okay. I know it's, it's just, you know, grasping at the wind. It doesn't matter. A careless, I know, Dad. And sure enough, Eden's getting on her back, and she's standing on the couch to do it. Good parenting, I know. Let me keep your kids anytime. Um, and so Eden jumps on Shiloh's back, and Shiloh, again, can't handle the weight. And so she kind of does this, and Eden flips over her head and lands on her back, thankfully her back and not her neck, lands on her back on the floor. And I just watch it happen, and I'm just like, what is my life? <laughs> I'm just like, what is my life, you know? And you just kind of deal with it. And of course, Shiloh freezes in panic, and she looks at me like, thinking, what's going to happen next? I'm thinking the same thing, what's going to happen next? We look at Shiloh or Eden, and Eden just pops up like nothing happened at all, and she's giggling her head off. And that's just what it's like to live in my home every day. I, you know, I use that analogy for what I'm about to say. I could literally use 25 news stories to illustrate the exact point I'm about to make every single Sunday. I could have 25 new ones. Generally, with age and maturity comes some perspective. And I had perspective in that moment, and my children did not. Children lack knowledge and wisdom and perspective. And I know that because I was one of them, and you were one of them. And they even hear their father's voice or their mother's voice. They hear their father's voice, and they foolishly carry on like it doesn't even exist. And we hear this story like that, and we laugh at a story like that because it is funny and because nobody really got hurt. But in contrast with God's infinite knowledge and God's infinite wisdom and God's infinite perspective, we are the naive, careless, foolishly reckless children in that analogy, aren't we? Our Father is infinite as knowledge, and we hear Him, and we, we hear his, his voice, and we say, yeah, yeah, I got it, Dad. And then we go out and foolishly and carelessly and recklessly live our lives. We hear the Father's counsel, and yet we carry on forgetting what we've heard. 
You ever heard the expression, you can't see the forest for the trees? You ever heard that expression before? It means that you don't see the whole picture because you're so uh, caught up in the, the conflict, the trees, the conflict or the chaos or the concern or the worry or the stress or the uncertainty or whatever the circumstances are. You have somebody, a third party that comes in and says, hey, here's what it actually looks like because you can't see the forest for the trees. You need a word of perspective, somebody that sees things as they are because you are too in them to really see what's going on. You see, God can see the forest, but sometimes all we can see is the trees. God sees perfectly. And prayer, what we're going to talk about a lot today, prayer is an active expression of one's desire to share in our Father's heart and mind. It's an active expression that I want to share in God's heart and in God's mind. In, in a word, that's I want to have perspective. I want to have God's perspective. And that prayer is sort of a vehicle for us to get there. Prayer and perspective in trusting that while we can only see the trees, God does see the forest. And the early church that we're going to study all throughout the book of Acts, and if you're new today, we've, we started in Acts chapter 1, verse 1. We're going to go through the entire thing over the next several months But the early church knew that if they were to be faithful witnesses, which we talked about last week, that they would need to depend on their father, that they would need to be people of perspective. And the only way they were going to have proper perspective is if they were people of prayer. That was a lot of P's I just said, people of proper perspective, people of prayer. It's a lot. I wasn't intended. Let's look at Acts chapter 1 together, all right? Acts chapter 1, we're going to look at verses 12 through 26 together. Acts 1, 12 through 26. It says, Then, this is after Jesus' ascension, Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. When they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew and Philip and Thomas and Bartholomew and Matthew and James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James. This is not Judas Iscariot, by the way. Verse 14. All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Also could be translated brothers and sisters. Verse 15. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120. And he said, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, that is Judas Iscariot, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted in his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness and falling headlong, which means head first, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language, Akaldama. That is, the field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be none to dwell in it. And let another take his office. So, one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. Verse 23. And they put forward two. Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias. And he was numbered with the eleven apostles." 
Last week, we looked at the fact that Jesus, in his last words before he ascended to the throne in heaven, he said to his disciples that in verse 8, was really the summary verse, and I'm not going to go back and read it, but what he essentially says is, wait here, the Spirit is going to come upon you, you're going to go and be my witnesses. The Spirit is how, you're going to go and be my witnesses, which is what he's called them to do. And then he says, where I'm going to call you to do it, he says, Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, which is your city, the, the regions around you, and then to the end of the earth, which is everywhere. So where's the gospel going to go? Where are you going to go as witnesses? You're going to go everywhere. You're going to go all over the place and spread the good news of the gospel. And so the disciples, the very next thing that we're looking at today is the disciples heard the instruction and they go back to Jerusalem where Jesus said it all is going to begin. And so in our passage, they head to Jerusalem. This is a passage that you, you may have heard this taught before, but maybe not because, and I say that because it sort of gets lost between two gigantic pillar passages, one being the ascension of Jesus, ascension day, but the next one being the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit comes upon his people. And so you have these two big moments in the narrative, and then you have this moment that sort of falls between them that can sometimes get lost in the narrative. But the selection of Matthias makes the 12 apostles whole again, but it really is a much larger symbol than just that. The number 12 in the Bible is recorded 212 times. It's an important number. As you may know, numbers in the Bible can be oftentimes important. And this is a number that is very important, the number 12. 212 times in the Bible. <clears throat> that or 12. 12 is the number of completion. It can also be the number of God's authority or his power. But really mainly, I would say it's the number of completion. If you think way back in the Old Testament, in the book of Genesis, God is establishing for the first time his people. The nation of those people would be called Israel. But it was, it was named after a guy named Israel. But before Israel's name was Israel, his name was Jacob. And I may be educating, but this is very important. Please listen to the things that I'm saying. Jacob had 12 sons. So this before the nation of Israel. He is Israel. Before that was established, Jacob had 12 sons. And each of those sons would represent a tribe that would eventually go and establish a nation. They would be the 12 tribes of Israel. In the Old Testament, God was establishing a kingdom for himself. And what was that kingdom called? Israel. That was his kingdom. And so how many tribes did he send to establish that kingdom? He sent 12, a number of completion. My kingdom is made up of 12 to go and establish. Well, listen, a kingdom has to have a king. And that king, for a time, was Saul. And then it was David. And then it was Solomon. And then it was the sons of Solomon. But I want you to hear me say this. There is one everlasting king of God's kingdom. And who is that? It's Jesus. He is the Christ. He is the king, the one and the final king of the kingdom. And if Christ is the king of the kingdom, I want you to understand that his New Testament kingdom began with 12. 12 that go out and establish the church sent out to grow the kingdom, sent out on mission to establish a kingdom unto their king. I want you to see the parallel there. Old Testament and New, 12, a number of completion. God establishes his people with 12. In the New Testament, Jesus says, go with 12 and establish my kingdom. Is that not neat? That's a really neat detail that I want you to see there. And the reason why I want you to see that is that we belong to that kingdom that started with 12, and yet it has multiplied and multiplied and become millions of followers of our King Jesus. Now, why do I say that? Because the selection of Matthias symbolically makes Israel, makes the church whole 
Again, before they could go and begin to work on the kingdom, they had to first become once again whole after the betrayal of Judas. If God establishing his nation through 12 men in the Old Testament was a big deal for a physical nation, then God winning the nations through 12 men in the New Testament was infinitely greater. They moved forward. But before they could go forward with a purpose, they had to become whole again. And they did it with prayer and perspective. I'm going to leave you with three things today. If you see the screen behind me, you're going to see three main little bullet points there. Number one, we're going to take them from all three of them. Number one is praying with perspective. I realize I'm, I'm sort of putting the title of the message all in number one, but we're going to see that these things sort of build on one another for the second and third. Number one is praying with perspective. You ever think about it? I mean, prayer, why do we pray? Is it for God or is it for us? Well, it's kind of both, right? Prayer is for both of us. I mean, prayer in and of itself is a statement of perspective. It's a statement to God, but also it's a statement to ourselves. How so? Well, prayer says to ourselves that we are dependent, right? Right? Prayer is a, a verbal expression of our dependence. Well, what does it say to God then? If that's what it says about us, it says that God is the one to which, or on which we depend. Prayer also says to ourselves we cannot self-sustain. But what does it say to God? That God is our sustainer. To ourselves, we are saying, I am, am a worshiper, right? And to God, we are saying, you are the object of my worship. We do this through prayer. And finally, it expresses to God, God, I am, am weak. But what does it say to God? It says that God, in my weakness, you are my strength. Do you see how prayer in and of itself is an expression of perspective unto God? Do you see that? It's a very important detail to begin with, that when we see prayer here, there's something to see there. Prayer is important. For these gathered in this upper room at this moment, commissioned to carry on a weighty mission, they began with perspective that led to prayer and vice versa. Look at verse 12. So it says, They returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, that is the Mount of Olives, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. Again, it all starts in Jerusalem. This was Jesus' instruction. Go ahead. Do you have that map? You can throw it up there for me. <clears throat> so we looked at this map back when we were looking at the book of John. I like to use maps because I think it gives you a word, a, a picture to go with the words. Um, now, you can ignore all these red lines. These are the last steps of Jesus, and this is a rough look at the last, last steps of Jesus. But I want you to see one main thing. These, this is the city of Jerusalem, and I want you to see how close the Mount of Olives is to the city of Jerusalem. It's on the, you may be able to see it in the very top of that image. In the top right-hand corner, you can see where it says Mount of Olives. That would be Mount Olivet. That's where the ascension took place. And I want you to see how close it is to the city of Jerusalem. And the reason I say that is because verse 12 says that uh, it's a Sabbath day's journey away. That's not to mean that it is a day's traveling away. A Sabbath day's journey was their way of saying that according to their traditional application of the law, which isn't really the law, it's their application of the law, the, to them the maximum distance that you were allowed to travel on the Sabbath day before it was considered work and wrong was 0.6 miles roughly. So what the author is saying here is that the ascension of Jesus didn't take place an entire day's walk away it took place 0.6 miles away. I just thought that that was a neat little detail that I wanted to show you this morning. You can take the map down. Look at verse 13. It says, And when they had <clears throat> entered, so this upper room in Jerusalem, they went back into the city. They went up to the upper room where they were staying. Here's your, uh, your list of guys. Peter, and by the way, if you were to number them all, it's 11. I'll just take my word for it. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. And once again, that is not Judas Iscariot. That is Judas the son of James, one of the 11. 
These are the 11 apostles. The 11 remaining apostles, it's 12 minus uh, Judas, who was Jesus' betrayer. Uh, in ancient literature, they had a way that it, basically if someone were to be moving on, passing on, passing away, dying, oftentimes in ancient literature, there would be a list of successors right after that mention. It would be similar to the way that we do in obituary. You ever been to a funeral or read an obituary? What does it often say? This individual is survived by their successors. In ancient literature, it's very common for them to do something similar. And so as Jesus is departing and leaving, I want to suggest to you that this is the list of his successors. Isn't that great? These are the guys that carry on my name and carry on my mission, the successors, carrying on the ministry of Jesus, carrying it forward. So Luke takes a moment to mention that they were prioritizing one activity as they gathered. Look at verse 14. All these with one accord, don't miss that part, together, one accord, unity, they were devoting themselves to, here's the activity, prayer. They were doing so together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. The very first act of the New Testament church was collective prayer. The very first act of the New Testament church was collective prayer. Isn't that something? Something to consider. For Jesus' followers, the waiting that he said in verse 4, <clears throat> he says, wait until for the promise of the Spirit, promise of the Father. As you're waiting, they're waiting in verse 4. Here is to pray. Waiting in prayer for them was joined at the hip. They're waiting on God, meant praying for God to move on them, move in them, and move through them. It just goes back to what we looked at two weeks ago, that being still and waiting does not mean being idle. They were still, they were waiting, but they were not idle. God's people need God's help by God's power to do God's mission. This is what they're expressing, that God's people need God's help by God's power to do God's mission. And I'm going to suggest to you, that's something that we're going to see a lot in this book. That this is a pattern in Acts. Please listen to this. Where God moves in a big way in this book, prayer precedes divine movement. There's an application for us there. Are you waiting for God to move? You best be praying. Are you ready for a movement of God in your heart? Are you praying? Are you struggling to honor and obey God? Are you praying? Are you having a hard time seeing him in the midst of your conflict and your struggle and your difficulty? I'm gonna ask you simply, are you praying? Do not expect a divine movement of God in your life if you are not immersing yourself in prayer. And that's true, right? A good principle there is being deeply immersed in something in general, whether it be prayer or anything else, being deeply immersed in something causes you to instinctively speak that language. It's like we're, we're impressing, upon, we're impressible by things, right? We're, we're sponges and we soak up an environment that we may be in. And not just prayer, but it's why you may find yourself thinking at work the next day about that show that you've been streaming before bed because you've immersed yourself in that thing and so it sort of goes with you. You know what I'm talking about? And you find yourself maybe asking a friend if they've seen that show. It's why when work is extremely taxing, you have to remind yourself, okay, maybe on the ride home, I got to leave work at work. Why? Because you've been so immersed in it that you find yourself bringing it with you and taking it and talking about it and speaking about it with others. It's also why our, our being impressionable. It's why you don't want your teenager spending time around the wrong crowd because by impression, they start speaking like them and acting like them because that which we immerse ourselves with, it sort of latches onto us and goes with us. 
Our thoughts, our speech, our behavior, they follow what we are immersing ourselves in. When I was 10 years old, I lived in Clinton, Mississippi. I was raised in Mississippi, but I call Birmingham, Alabama home. It's very confusing. We moved a lot. But uh, I was born and raised in Mississippi. also spent a couple years in New Orleans as a young child. But when I was 10, we lived in Clinton, Mississippi. And I remember I just like kind of had a friend over, and he introduced me to Mortal Kombat, which is a video game. It's like fighting, and it can be really gruesome and not something you should allow your 10-year-old to do, okay? And I was so immersed. I was like, whoa, this is like a, I can't believe this exists. And so I was just feasting on Mortal Kombat. And you're like, you're our pastor. This is great, you know? But I was so immersed in that, and this is where I'm going with this. So um, I played for like eight hours in one day in my room, just like immersing myself in Mortal Kombat. It's just a video game. And I went to sleep that night, about two o'clock in the morning. I go downstairs, and I walk into my parents' room. They're asleep, and right Walking out my parents at 2 o'clock in the morning, they're asleep, and I go to my mother's side of the bed, which was not common. We didn't do that. Like, we didn't, never went to our parents while they were sleeping for anything, really. It was, it was an absolute nightmare. This was about to be. Um, I went down there, and I looked at my mom, and I woke her up, and she, it was like her eyes went, <laughs> like, what are you doing? Why are you, you know? And uh, she looked mad already just because I'd woken her up. And I said, Mom, how do you do a flip on Mortal Kombat? I was sleepwalking, and uh, I was about to wake up because she said back to me, she said, son, go to bed before I kill you. <laughs> I'll never forget that, and we laughed like crazy over that. Because I, and then I woke up, and I ran upstairs like, I'm about to be murdered right here in my parents' bedroom. Um, but the reason I say that is because I had immersed myself so deeply in something that it sort of, I mean, subconsciously even, it went with me, right? But that's what happens, and that's true not just of children, it's true of us as adults. Our thoughts and our speech and our behavior, they follow what we are immersing ourselves in. It works negatively, like the examples I mentioned just a moment ago, but I got some news for you. It also works positively. If you are deeply immersed in prayer, constantly engaging the Spirit of God, constantly thanking God, constantly petitioning God, then when you go out into the world, your thoughts and your speech and your behavior will follow that which you have immersed yourself into. That's the truth. If you are immersed in prayer, you will speak a different language. I don't mean tongues. I mean you will speak a different language when you are around your peers, you will speak a different language around your children. It will change the way that you walk in this life. You will walk to the beat of a different drum than those around you. You will parent with a different heart. You will be a spouse with a different heart. But it begins, if you want that perspective, it begins with being immersed in prayer. Our thoughts, our speech, and our behavior, they follow what we are immersing ourselves in. Into. And by the way, most pertinently, as it pertains to our passage, what we're supposed to take away from this upper room is that if we're immersing ourselves in prayer, as our brothers and sisters did 2,000 years ago, you will see the mission field with the same eyes that God sees the mission field. You want a heart for the lost? You talk to the one who has the ultimate heart for the lost that gave his son Jesus that they would not perish but have eternal life. You want to have a heart that is broken to see people perishing in their sin? You talk to God and you share his heart. And you'll have a new perspective 
You'll walk to the beat of a different drum. You'll speak a different language. But it all starts with what it says right here in verse 14, that they were devoting themselves to prayer. You want to see God move in and around you? Take up a prayer partner. Perhaps they're sitting right next to you. Perhaps they're sitting across the room from you. Perhaps they sit near you in your Sunday school class. You want to see God move? Partner with one another and say, we're going to pray for that in each other's lives. Pray with your spouse. Pray with your kids. You want your kids to receive a movement of God? Prayer matters, man. If you're prayerless about them, I would expect no different. God moves when we pray. Pray at your workplace. Students, pray with your classmates before school. You can do that. You can pray with your classmates for a movement of God in your hearts. Don't just talk about it to one another. We need to talk about it to the only one who is powerful enough to accomplish it. What perspective? It begins with prayer. They move forward with their purpose. And the next thing I want you to see is number two, resting in rule. Resting in rule. I think that this next part is really neat. They go from a small crowd in the upper room, the 12 and a few others, Jesus' brothers, maybe brothers and sisters, his mother, a few people. But they go from the small crowd in the upper room to a place, it says in verse 15, that has 120 people. So there's some sort of a, a scenario change here. Look at verses 15 through 19. It says, in those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons is about 120. And he said, by the way, this is the first time that we're going to see Peter begin to uh, do some leading leadership. He is the spokesperson for uh, the acts of the apostles. He is the spokesperson for this group of guys. <clears throat> Verse 16, he says, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in the ministry. The quote closes there, and then Luke gives some parenthetical notation. Now, this man acquired a field. He's talking about Judas. This man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness. And falling headlong, which means headfirst, he burst open in the middle, and his gut and all his bowels gushed out. Thanks for that little detail there, Luke. 19 says, And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Akhaldama, that is, field of blood. Again, Peter is the one that's unfolding this, these events for us. Judas, many of you know, but I'm not going to assume any information. Judas is the guy that betrayed Jesus and gave them to his um, accusers, gave them to eventual his murderers. And so he was their guide. They found him in the Garden of Gethsemane, and Jesus is praying. Jesus knows he's coming. He even says, like, tonight's the, the night. I'm going to be crucified. He, he foretells all these things, and yet Judas shows up not by surprise. They didn't catch Jesus off guard. He knew that they were coming. We talked about this at length in the book of John. So Jesus, Judas leaves the upper room as they're taking the Lord's Supper. He goes to get those that will arrest him, takes him to the Garden of Gethsemane where they eventually were, and Jesus is arrested. He's given a mock trial. He is beaten and marred, and then he is crucified, and then he's resurrected. This is the story. And Judas had a hand, a major hand, in the betrayal of his supposed friend, Jesus. He betrayed Jesus to a murderous end for a measly 30 pieces of silver. Later, a field was purchased <clears throat> with the blood money, which is what you read about here in verse 19. 
<coughs> filled with remorse and filled with guilt. Judas, the Bible tells us, killed himself on that field. It says that he fell head first. His intestines spilled out. And why do we have all these graphic details? It says that this is the field of blood. That, that field of blood became his home. And then in verse 20, it says something about it becoming a desolate dwelling place. It's nasty, empty, nothing. Verse 20 says, For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate. And let there be none to dwell in it. It was a nasty land that no one wanted any part of because it was marred by this event that had taken place on it. You'll notice the indentation there in the margins that it's kind of spaced out. It's because what's happening here is that the author is quoting uh, the Psalms, Psalm 69, verse 25, and it concerns, his context here is that he's concerning David's call for help because his enemies are surrounding him. Listen, okay? I mean, you can't miss it. What's happening here is that the, what we're being told is that this psalm foretells the betrayal of Jesus. And in the context of that Psalm 69, David is calling for help from God because his enemies are encroaching on him. You see the relevancy, right? His enemies are encroaching on him. His enemies are insulting him. And so David calls out to God for these guys to be punished because they persecute God's chosen one, their, God's anointed and obviously we see the connection perhaps that Jesus is the ultimate son of David, God's ultimate chosen one, persecuted by the enemy, mocked by the insults, Judas. And this is Judas's punishment. The same way that David prayed that God would punish these, Judas receives it right here on the field of blood as he falls head first and his guts bust open. So why does Peter quote it? Peter's emphasis is that even the evil work of Judas did not occur outside of the sovereign, authoritative work and plans of our God. I'm going to reread verses 16 and 17 because it's really important what Peter's trying to get across here. Verses 16 and 17 say, Brothers, the scripture, listen, had to be fulfilled. Had to be fulfilled, he says, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David. David had the pen in his hand. But even Peter is affirming that, that God's Spirit is the one that wrote these things down <clears throat> concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. And I'll stop there for now. It says he had to be. That these things had to be fulfilled, had to happen. The words therefore had to be, it may say in your translation something like it was necessary or it was inevitable or it must happen. That's literally what that word means. Had to be is a, is a Greek word that means that it was inevitable. It was necessary. By the way, that's a word that is used by the author 22 times. It also says it had to happen because the scripture had to be, another word, fulfilled. The scriptures had to be fulfilled. That word is used in the book of Acts, fulfilled, 16 times. You take 22 and you take 16. It's very clear. Luke wants us to know that God's hand is over these things. God's hand is over these events. And the wild thing is, it means divine requirement. The evil at the hand of Judas was a divine requirement. In other words, Jesus was not wrong. Listen to this. Jesus was not wrong to choose Judas. He did not make a mistake in choosing Judas. He was part of the larger divine plan. And Jesus knew the day that he met him that he was shaking the hand of his killer. Great verse to keep in mind when you think of the, just the madness of that. It's Genesis 50, verse 20. It says, this is when Joseph had been betrayed by his brothers. They tried to murder him. And he looks in, in the face of his guys that tried to do him wrong, and he says, 
As for you, you meant evil against me. You meant evil against me. But God meant it for good. Check this last part out. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Now, he was talking about a famine. But I'm here to tell you that Judas meant something for great evil against Jesus, but God meant it for good. And he has brought about not healing from some famine or some physical ailment. Jesus has brought the salvation and healing of the souls of millions upon millions because God is bigger than the evil works of the evil one. Amen. There's a principle here, right? That God ultimately rules over human sin for his glory and for the ultimate good of mankind. And that's not just true of Judas. It's not just true of Joseph's brothers. That is true in our lives as well. That's why, I mean, you've got to know that verse, Romans 8, 28, when it says, and we know that for those who love God, all things, that's good things, that's bad things by our opinion, right? All things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. That means the horrors, the struggles of your life are not mess-ups by a reckless God who lacks control. They are instruments in the hands of a sovereign God who has total control. Is that not comforting? Is that not a balm for your soul? That God rules over evil for his glory and for our good, that in your madness, in your chaos, in your disaster, you would learn that God is sovereign, that he has authority, that he cares for you, that he is doing everything because he loves you, not in spite of his love for you. He redeems the mess, as I think I said a couple of weeks ago. But even more on the nose, I want to bring it back to the immediate context there. More on the nose is that this passage is given to encourage the church. Luke is writing these things years after the fact, and he's writing them to encourage the church. The Judas' betrayal, and every, listen, <clears throat> You're about to see a lot of opposition in this book against the church. What Luke is trying to communicate is that Judas' betrayal and every subsequent opposition of the church are all part of the grand, divine, sovereign, authoritative, ruling plan of the kingdom of God. Every opposition. Human evil does not overrule a sovereign God. The opposite is true. A sovereign God rules over human evil 100% of the time. Saul and the temple authorities would begin to persecute the church just shortly. It wouldn't matter. The church goes forward. Rome would eventually attack the church. It would go forward. A gladiator arena would be filled of public martyrdom of those identifying to be Christians. They'll be eaten by animals, lions, and yet the church goes forward. Bold witnesses were burned at the stake, and yet the church goes forward. The Roman Empire in Caesar is a name only in memory, and yet Jesus' church still stands, and his kingdom has outlasted every empire that has ever existed, and it will outlast every empire that will ever exist because our kingdom is undefeated and not stoppable. Every opposition of the church and of Christians, then and now, that man means for evil, they're all part of God's kingdom march forward for his glory and for our good. Here's why that matters. We live in a world that is staunchly opposed to the kingdom of God. And at the end of the day, it don't matter. No matter what the politicians attempt to legislate against us, it won't matter. No matter how many attempt to silence the church, Christians, it won't matter. 
No matter which culture mobs try to marginalize us and push us to the margins, it won't matter. No matter what happens in the schools or in the courts or in the court of public opinion, the church goes forward. No matter what your classmates say, no matter what your peers say, no matter what your parents say or your kids may say, they may walk away, they may scoff at you and mock you, but you know what happens at the end of the day? The kingdom marches forward straight into the gates of glory. Because the kingdom and its king have never and will never be defeated. We march forward, and here's why. Because the victory is not decided. Please hear this in the 21st century in the United States of America. The victory is not decided in the court of a public opinion. The victory was decided 2,000 years ago when on a bloody cross Jesus cried out that it is finished and when the grave could not hold him. That's when the victory was laid down. We rest in his rule because human evil does not overrule a sovereign God. And when Satan, by the way, when Satan thought that he was driving into Jesus the nails of hell's victory, and you know he thought that, that God was turning them into the nails of hell's defeat. They were the nails in the coffin of the grave. The kingdom marches forward. Praise God for that, man. We move forward with purpose, man. Resting in his rule. Man, that has so much relevancy to our lives, and we could just stay there, but we got to keep going. Number three, evaluating my place. Evaluating my place. This is so important, man. I want you to really see the beauty of this here. The next passage, and in, 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 then we got a lot left. We're going to go very quickly through this. The second half of verse 20 has another quote from another psalm. It's from Psalm 109, verse 8. <clears throat> and it says, let another take his office. Simply put, this is Peter saying, this is another fulfillment. Judas had to be replaced. And God knew it was going to happen a long, long time ago. Look at the second half of verse 20, and then we're going to look at through verse 22. And let another take his office. So one of the men who had accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us, one of these men, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. It's their way of saying, we got to replace Judas, and one of the brothers has to be number 12. It says he's going to be a witness with us. What Jesus is doing, chapter 1, verse 8. Remember, you will be my witnesses. Well, we need one more, is what they're trying to say. We've got to re-complete the 12, the number of completion. Look at verses 23 through 26. And they put forward two. Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice. Cool nickname, man. And Matthias, verse 24. And they prayed and said, you, Lord, know the hearts of all. Show which one of these two you have chosen. You have chosen to take place, take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. You may look at that and say, man, it's a lot of details. What, what does that really mean? How, what are you going to take from that, right? What are we going to take from this? Well, first of all, how'd you like to be known as unlucky number 13 that didn't make the cut? They even put his name down. That's just dirty. You know what I'm saying? It's like, here's the guy that wasn't good enough. No, I'm just kidding. Look, both of these guys, these guys were both beginning to end followers. It says that, right? It says from the time that Jesus was baptized by John to the time that he walked up into the clouds. He said, these two brothers were with Jesus to the end, and that's commendable. Sometimes we think it's just the 12, right? It says here that these guys were diehard brothers. So how did they decide between the two of them? You may think, well, they cast lots. Not exactly. They didn't just cast lots. We can't miss the most essential part. Let me read verse 24. It says, and they prayed. You hear that, right? They didn't just cast lots. It says they prayed together. You, Lord, know the hearts of all. Show which one of these two 
you have chosen. They prayed. You know all hearts, Lord. Can you imagine how tightly scrutinized this election was and would be? The last guy to be the 12th was a lying, thieving murderer who betrayed the Son of God and offered him and, and offed himself, killed himself. And so what do they say? I'm not about to pick number 12. Let's give it to God. Can you imagine? Of course they would give it to God. They cast lots. Matthias is selected. Not much is known of this method, casting lots. I will say that method is mentioned 70 times in the Old Testament and seven times in the New Testament. The number seven is important in the Bible, too. It's 77. It's got to be something important, right? Why is it important? Well, it's an ancient coin toss, essentially. Maybe not with a literal coin, but it's a way that they would determine something. Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. In other words, this is a common method of determining God's will in ancient Judaism. The result is not among man. It's given from and given to the Lord. Very important is that Jesus had chosen and called the twelve. So for this replacement selection of an apostle, they used a method of turning it over to the Lord. Just another huge emphasis by Luke and by the apostles of God's divine hand that they're ultimately leaning on. But God, you, you got to do it. They're leaning on him. They're calling a witness who will wholeheartedly go forward with them. And this is true of every disciple. It's true of each one of us. That if you are to be a follower of Jesus, you are a witness who is to wholeheartedly go forward with them, with the church. I want to look at one more thing. Look at verse 25. <clears throat> he says, we've got to pick one of these guys. It says, to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. This is my favorite part in the passage. We read this in English. And even in English, you can see some parallels here. But in Greek, there's a really neat parallel that's being used here by the author. The words are <clears throat> topon and diakonias. If you saw them, it sort of transliterated. The word for ministry, is, it looks just like deacon. It's, it's service. And so the next thing is it says that we got to pick one that goes to the place, topon is place, go to the place of service because Judas went to topon idion, which means his own place. He says, we got to choose someone that's going to go to the place of serving. It's the word used for a waiter, someone that takes up a towel and says they're going to serve another. we got to pick one that's going to serve the ministry, serve the king, serve Jesus, because Judas, listen, he served himself. The word there, idion, it literally means, it's stronger than just own. It is this emphatic adjective that means personal. He's saying that, we are, are diakone. It's We serve Jesus. We got to pick somebody that's going to serve Jesus because the opposite of that is what Judas did. He was so, he said, I'm going to be me. I'm going to do it for myself. Don't you see the contrast? There is no in between. You either serve Christ and Christ alone or you shake your fist at him and say, it's me and it's mine and it's my way and my life belongs to me. It doesn't belong to you. Guys, this passage very clearly is an invitation but really, it is an ultimatum. You've got to hear me on this. This is an ultimatum given to us by God. The conclusion is the essence of discipleship. You will either, listen, you will either take the place, top on, the place in ministry and service and serving King Jesus, or you will shake your fist at him and say, I'm doing it my own way. I'm taking my own place. It's either his place or it's my place. 
And for some of you, it's time that you finally stop going to your own place and to find your place in Jesus. That's the third thing. It's evaluating my place. Which place are you going to go to? The gory details about the gut spilling out, the reason that's so dramatic is because it's Peter's way of showing you that the eternal consequences of sin and going to your own place are even worse than your insides spilling out on a field. The wages of sin is death. It's horrible. It's eternity separated from God. Eternal consequences of sin are dire. They're eternal torment. But God is rich in mercy. God is rich in mercy. And while the wages of sin is death, you know what the gift of God is? Life. Eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. He is rich in mercy. You don't, be, you don't have to be left to eternal torment. Today you can give your life to Christ and see that. I don't, I don't have to go to my place. It's, it's, it's bankrupt. It's empty. Find your place in the name of Jesus that you would not perish but have eternal life. And we can move forward and see that for us that are in Christ Jesus, man, praise God for this, that death is not a demise to be dreaded, but it is instead a gateway to glory. But only in Christ alone.